Hello. Hey, Serena, how are you? There's no chemistry? Like, what the heck? <laughs> like, as a topic? What do you mean there's no chemistry? There's no chemistry. Where? I thought... I'm... Let me try it. The abstract no, was no. about dipeptides and stuff. No, I mean, as a topic to, like, add it here on Clubhouse. Oh, I see. What the heck? I should complain about that. <laughs> yes. Hi, Ankit. Um, I don't know. I see you're joined today and that you're member of the Science Society. Are you? I'm following you because you're most likely in <laughs> Dr. Uyin's uh, lab. So feel free to come to the stage. So, how's Hi, Eric. How are you? Hello, Eric. I'm all right. Hello, Serena, Tarina, everyone else. Uh, happy Thursday. Uh, yeah, uh, nice weather for me. Um, looking forward to uh, learning some new crazy science. Yep. This looks like it could qualify. It's a whole new institute here in New York that he uh, opened up, so it's really cool. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this talk. John. But that is so weird that on Clubhouse there is no topic option chemistry. That is weird. Well, chemistry is just complicated physics, let's be honest here. <laughs> <laughs> or is it more fundamental physics and <laughs> biology? But We're always in a weird place because, you know, when we, whatever we think of physicists, we know the biologists think of us in turn. Yeah, uh, for, for at least my university, the feud was more uh, regarding engineers, mathematicians, and physicists. So each of the professors of, the, of those departments kind of trashed the other departments, and it just made for a very unpleasant kind of atmosphere. And then when you actually work with teams that are multidisciplinary or multi, uh, like, uh, yeah, disciplinary, uh, you end up seeing that actually none of that stuff matters. So it was... <laughs> hey, hey, Ryan, welcome. Welcome to our club. Thank you for making it. Hello. 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 The unmute button is all the way on the bottom right corner, the little microphone symbol. Got so. you. Can you hear me now? Yep. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Oh, cool. hi. Hi, everybody. Sorry about that. Hello. Oh, no worries. Welcome. Thanks. Excited to be here. Yeah, we are excited to hear your about your research. Is Ankit uh, part of your uh, lab? 
Uh, yes. So Ankit is, and he said, he, yeah, I think he's there. Yeah, so Ankit, yeah. Ankit is Ankit is there, and I think Scott, um, the, uh, Ankit and Scott are the two key people who did a lot of this work. Um, so Scott, I don't see yet, but he said he would join us from from Scotland, actually, where he is right now. Oh, wonderful! So, oh, wonderful. Hey, Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so I see you made Ankit part of the, um, he's been moved to speaker. Yes. So that's, so that's great. So Ankit can help me um, explain the story. That's that's excellent. Perfect. I, I don't think I have a bio from from you, Ankit. So I apologize if I did. I can, uh, I can introduce him oh, if, you, yeah. if you like. I know Ankit pretty okay. well. So. <laughs> Okay, I'll introduce you, you introduce Ankit. So that's perfect. Perfect. We'll start in around four minutes. Uh, yeah. That's okay to give people time to arrive. Um, yeah. I'm just gonna plug my phone in to make sure that we don't run out of battery midway. Yeah, Clubhouse drains the battery, don't you think, everyone? Like, Clubhouse is a battery draining app. Well, I'm never far from a charger. <laughs> That's a true Clubhouse addict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> That's good. I'm scanning the slides. These look, this looks, this is going to be so fun. Right, they are so pretty. Well, it's it's actually a nice opportunity for us because we've had, uh, I mean, this, this story, uh, Ankit and I are super proud of it. We've worked on it for about five years and um, it's it's complex, but it's also kind of relevant, we think, to a lot of things. So we, we've been trying to figure out the best ways to present this to people who are not experts. So uh, this is a, a really nice opportunity for us to see how that goes, if we can um, make sense out of all the complexity. Um, well, well, great. My background's chemistry, and I have, oh, also, that's good. I have a deep pet theory about the origin of life. So I'm already seeing okay. stuff. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Really cool. Yeah, we're trying. We're, we've we've been trying to avoid uh, <laughs> uh, making big claims about origin of life, but on the other hand, we do think there is some relevance there. So we can definitely talk about that. Okay, good. But I also did work in computer aided molecular design, so I. Um, okay, it's right up your street then. Yeah, this this looks great. Yeah, in this work, we didn't use uh, much computer-aided uh, any, in fact. This was all, um, well, informed informed by biology and then purely experimental. But we, we also do use uh, computation a lot, actually, more and more so in, in our lab to help mm -hmm. figure out some design rules and, and things like that. So, yeah. Well, great. I can't wait. Yeah, it's really exciting. I'm a former biophysicist turned entrepreneur who works on a sensor for rapid ID of pathogens. And uh, we're always thinking of how the next generation of not only uh, diagnostics, but also synthesis uh, could perhaps be aided by uh, new perspectives in uh, either environment or processes. So looking forward to it. Yeah.
How are you doing, Ankit? I think you can unmute if you uh, if you feel comfortable. Right, right, bottom corner. I just learned. Okay, Katarina, think we could get started, ah. or should we? Yeah, let's let Ankit find uh, the unmute button. Do, do, it's like a a little microphone symbol on the bottom right hand corner. If you press on that, we can hear you. Maybe he's away from the phone right now. Okay. Then we can okay, we'll figure it out. I can, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, if he is having a, a trouble with the interface, it may help to uh, close the app and restart it. The classic, uh, have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? Uh, <laughs> as is the case with uh, most apps nowadays, sometimes they get a little quirky. So, Okay. Okay. Then uh, let's start. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, oh yeah, Ankit wrote in the chat. Sorry, trying, but can join right now. He's restarting it. Okay, who will be back? Um, good. Uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society. We are very honored to have our guest speaker here today. And I hope I'm saying his name right, Dr. Rein Huyin. And um, let me give you a little bit of background information. He is the founding director of the Nanoscience Initiative at the Advanced Science Research Center at CUNY in New York. And um, he did his master's in biotechnology at the University of Wageningen in the Netherlands and his PhD in Physical Chemistry University of Strathclyde and the UK and he has um, he has held several personal fellowships and has won a number of awards including um, the RSC's Norman Heats um, Heatley Medal and Royal Society Merit Award in 2014 and um, his lab is focused on figuring out how the molecules and processes of life can be engineered and repurposed to develop new materials and technologies that respond to their context and are green and sustainable. These approaches have wide-ranging applications, ranging from energy harvesting, tissue engineering, sensing, and new ways of chemical information processing. I think this is quite uh, amazing and important work. So thank you for um, being here. And um, if it's okay, one of us will ask you a more general question. Serena, do you want to go ahead and sure. ask? Sure. So we usually like to start with a, uh, you know, a very general question just to get to know you a little better. Um, was there any point in your life and growing up that you realized that you're going to become a scientist? Or what was your first experience that really led you down this path? Oh, well, thanks. That's, that's a, a great, great question. Um, so yeah, I remember uh, exactly actually when when I decided that I well, that, that I probably wanted to be a scientist. Um, 
when I was probably about 14 years old uh, in my biology class in, in high school, um, I learned about genetics and um, the and I learned that biology with all its complexity can be logical and predictable. Uh, we, we learned about um, Mendel genetics. Then later I learned about the, you know, the Watson Crick double helix DNA and that all of this is encoded into molecules and you know that to me was incredible i still think that's incredible and uh yeah i've been ever since been very very interested in uh in in figuring out more about how how biology works and then i guess when i went to university i i liked the idea so then this was early 90s um when biotechnology just uh you know became became a thing so uh, I was in the Netherlands and there was a, this new course uh, that you could study in bio, biotechnology, which basically um, was the promise of, you know, uh, using uh, what biology can do so amazingly uh, for a variety of applications that may or may, may not be explored already by biology. So going essentially beyond what biology can do with, with biology's tools. So that, that really intrigued me. Um, and then I guess I learned that um, to really have a deep understanding, you have to understand the molecules that are responsible really well. So that's when I made the shift to chemistry, physical chemistry, and then, yeah, ended up in materials and, uh, and nano. But yeah, it's been, I guess, an ongoing, uh, yeah, I've, I've been driven by curiosity and uh, hopefully doing something something meaningful also and you know and being a, a you know a, i'm very glad that the, the job exists uh, of being a you know scientist and a professor um because i uh, yeah it, it's a it's a great great job so I'm, I'm very glad i went down this path well it's fascinating there's so many similarities to what drew me down to the molecular level as well um so i i'm curious then uh, having, you know, you know, you, you paint the picture of just reaching for more and more fundamentals. At what point did, um, did your curiosity bring you to the present work where um, it just looks like a fascinating presentation ahead, but um, <laughs> what, what, uh, what drove you here? Yeah, thank you. I think, I think, um, I guess the realization, so at some point you learn more and more about how, you know, living things work and, and you, you quickly come to realize that it's incredibly complex and um, that we, we still have very, very, very limited understanding of uh, how biology does its engineering. And um, then I guess I, 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 um, I like the idea of, of, um, I guess a reductionist approach there where you can basically um, break the whole thing down into sim simpler pieces uh, that you can study and can understand and can, you know, predict. And so we've done that. That's actually been my, my, my research uh, focus really um, until um, maybe, maybe a few years ago where we then, so then we, we started to understand the pieces pretty well. But, you know, using a reductionist approach, you also limit yourself, really, because biology is inherently not reductionist. So now what we started to do is these simpler pieces that we now understand, we put them back together again in different ways to build complexity. So that's kind of how it worked, I guess. So um, realizing that, that, that biology is incredibly complex, 
then going reductionist to, to uh, end up with something that you can engineer and understand and then building complexity back in, but from those simple pieces. So it's, it's actually different from what biology does. Biology does complexity from pieces that themselves are also complex. So you look at one protein as a very complex, um, uh, you know, object or machine. And then within a cell, you have, you, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of these things working together. Um, the building, you know, the, the, the individual pieces are complex and, and, and the collective even more so. So we, we really asked the question, can we simplify the building blocks, but still um, have biology's complexity approach? So, yeah, that's that's how we, um, we we got here. And I would say this paper, that's why I'm really, you know, flattered that you, you guys picked it up. Um, for us, it's a it's it's a, a, a real a real first step into uh, into complexity f after that reductionist approach. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, so the audience uh, can access the paper, the link, and the talk, and we yeah. can fo follow along. And so, take us away. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to just reposition myself here so I can see my, I hope I have enough battery life now. Um, because I'm going to, I think the, the, if people can see the presentation, that is probably um, quite helpful to, to look at that. I mean, I'm, uh, hopefully I can make sense also just by listening. But um, so I'll, I'll guide you through the slides and I'll try to, you know, mention when I'm switching slides so, so people can follow. Um, so the first slide is just, I just couldn't resist um, to put in a picture of our amazing building. So I was, uh, as you heard, in, in, in the UK for, for most of my academic career. And I um, moved to New York uh, eight years ago to help set up this um, interdisciplinary research center that you can see here. I, if you're familiar with New York, we're actually in Harlem. We're looking down um, towards... Um, Midtown, you can see a sliver of green maybe in the middle. That's um, that's Central Park, and on the very right-hand side, you can see the Empire State Building. So as as landmarks, so we're north of Central Park. So uh, tourists don't tend to go there so often, but you know, uh, I guess I recommend if you if you like science and and you like uh, you know uh, you like visiting New York and go a little bit further north. There's a lot going on there right now. We're uh, we have a, a wonderful building wonderful community uh, doing doing cool research. Um, and yeah, the title of my talk is Building Complexity in Biological Design Spaces. So that's what I, I guess tried to, to explain in my answer to the previous question. Um, you know, co complexity um, uh, is, is inherently hard to understand. Um, our view is if you build it and you understand all the pieces, then you can hopefully gain some understanding of how to engineer complexity. So instead of observing complexity and trying to figure out how it works, we're building it piece by piece um, uh, from, from molecules and then see how new behaviors emerge. Um, so if you go to the next slide, uh, so complex systems are um, mysterious in many ways. Uh, they're all around us and they are a, a, a really um, uh, huge um, science challenge, interdisciplinary science challenge to understand how um, complexity and connections give rise to new behavior. So I show there three examples at completely different scales. Um, cells clearly composed of many 
elements working together, interacting, and collectively giving giving rise to um, to behaviors. Uh, the middle image is a, is the brain, and the right image, of course, the planet. And all of these have in common that they are uh, complex systems, um, and they have an ability to encode and store and process and employ functional information. I, I took that line from the Santa Fe Institute, which is a a very famous uh, institute for complexity science in, in New Mexico. Um, so understanding any of these objects in, 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 uh, across the, the time scales and across the length scales and understanding how they respond to new situations is incredibly interesting but incredibly difficult. And uh, what we're trying to do is basically apply the same idea to chemistry and building it, as I, I said, from the, from the bottom up. So complex systems, if you, if you strip down, uh, if you strip them down to their, their key components, they, they have um, elements and these elements have interactions and collectively uh, this gives rise to a function or purpose. Um, so if you think of the previous slide, you think about um, cells, well, the elements could be organelles or, or proteins. Uh, the interactions could be, you know, how these, these, these proteins interact with each other. And then the collective function or purpose could be uh, something like uh, sensing or uh, movement or, or anything that a, a cell can do. It can do these things because all these elements work together. Um, and then if you, uh, if you look at the, the middle um, uh, picture there, uh, so if you're in PowerPoint mode, just, just uh, go uh, uh, click so the next thing uh, comes up. Um, these things then become stimuli responsive, in other words, responsive to their context um, uh, by um, essentially modulating their interactions. So if you put a, a system under any kind of stress, it will respond by changing the interactions between particular elements. And then if you go one step further, um, you get adaptation where in this case, the color uh, changes from white to red. And that's to, sig uh, to signify that if you, you um, as, as the, 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 the system, um, uh, you know, interacts and responds to its environment in some special systems, the elements can change. So the elements uh, change their properties and that gives rise to overall adaptation and that's what what basically happens in cells and in the brain and in planet earth that you have elements interacting collectively they respond to their their environment and then they the elements change as a as a result and the, the overall things uh, uh, changes and you can apply this to many other things i mentioned the santa fe institute they also apply this to the economy and you know, basically anything that's composed of multiple systems and interact, uh, multiple elements and interactions and response collectively. Okay, so that's a lot of uh, complexity there, but I try to break it down into something that's understandable, you know, uh, six uh, elements that interact and collectively give rise to behavior. Okay, now I'm gonna tell you how in this paper, we believe we have achieved uh, basically a chemical system that does the three things that are shown on this slide. So if you go to the next slide, um, I'm going to make the connection with uh, biological design spaces. So our complex system is, is, is built in a biological design space 
but with elements that are minimalistic. If you look at um, uh, uh, what we understand currently of, of um, uh, you know, how, how proteins work, proteins are composed, of course, of 20 amino acid building blocks. So the, on the left-hand side, we see uh, biology's toolbox. Uh, all pro proteins are composed of these 20 building blocks. For those of you who are uh, chemists, um, you will uh, recognize that these can undergo different types of interactions, the, the ones in purple versus the ones in green versus the ones in blue and red. So they basically have interactions programmed into them and quite simple interactions. But when you put these together in long chains, like in proteins, this becomes very, very complex. And um, if you think about the cell, the elements in the cell could be proteins that are themselves uh, quite complex. But th that, that complexity is now fairly well understood in that we have uh, artificial intelligence like Google's AlphaFold has made a lot of news over the last couple of years in that they are able now to predict, and this, this number is dated, it's probably over a million now, protein structures directly from the primary sequence. Uh, so in other words, you put 100 or 150 or 200 or 300 or 1,000 of these amino acid building blocks in a string. This folds up spontaneously, and this is now predictable. It's also possible to engineer proteins and make them better, make them do different things using tools like directed evolution, which won Nobel Prize for uh, Francis Arnold a few years ago. And it's also increasingly possible to engineer this through computational design. So that's, that's all wonderful, and it means that proteins to an extent are understood. But on the other hand, it's also really not very well understood because what we cannot do, all, everything here is, 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 is based on what biology has already come up with. So all the proteins that biology has come up with, we can, we can basically now understand and, 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 and predict how they, they fold. But from the amino acid building blocks, there's other design spaces that have not been explored by evolution. And it is very likely that you can build really interesting uh, machines and materials uh, by, you know, in that, in that kind of design space. So we don't have any tools yet to explore other design spaces. And other things we can't yet do is, um, is, 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 is do complexity, as I just explained it before. You know, proteins are understood, but how proteins then interact and collectively give, give rise to new behaviors, that's a frontier that's, that's still very difficult. So, um, so our um, research is focused on essentially forget about proteins, but going straight from these amino acid building blocks to uh to to make small elements uh you know elements uh in, in not not in the chemical sense but in the system sense so um and then and then essentially design complex systems so if you go to the next slide so i'm now on slide five um this is what this looks like so what we have now is the elements that are going to interact are dipeptides so the combinations of two amino acids the first one is responsible for interaction. The second one is responsible for aggregation. So that means that we have uh, dipeptides, small mo molecules that have two features built in. One is to aggregate and the other one is to interact. And what we've done in the experiments I'm gonna to talk to you about are to mix five of these together 
So you have five different molecules that have different interaction uh, propensities. You mix them together and then that becomes our system. And then later on, I will show you that we've gone a step further and actually mixed 15 of them together to make a complex system. And, and the complexity goes, goes beyond that, but I'll, I'll, I'll show you that in a minute. So what happens? So imagine these 15 molecules that all have different ways programmed into them to interact. If you mix them together, um, you get self-organization. So if you look at the, in the diagram on slide five and the, on the right-hand side, you can see now that all these dipeptides, the different colors uh, signify different types of interactions. So blue is po uh, positively charged and, and red is negatively charged. So you can see some of those interacting. And you can see that the, 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 the light gray, dark gray and black, that's the aggregation propensity. And in the center, you can see that some of these are now interacting. So in other words, you have all these molecules, you put them in a solution and they themselves start to organize themselves. So that is uh, essentially the first, um, uh, you know, the, you basically have everything in place here to make a, a, a complex system. You have elements um, and that, that, that will interact and give rise to collective properties. Then the next step is that we challenge this system. So we can, for example, change the temperature, or in this case, we actually added uh, ATP, so that's, uh, you know, uh, biology's uh, energy currency. We add that to that system. So you have this mixture of molecules all interacting, and now we add this other ligand molecule. And this, this ATP molecule has itself, um, you know, uh, properties. It has charge, it has negative charge, phosphate groups. It has uh, hydrogen bonding interactions shown in green. And then it has this purple piece, which is aromatic. So if we mix that in with our five uh, or 15 elements, we can start to see that they now organize themselves around that um, uh, ATP to basically minimize the impact of introducing this new molecule. So I hope that makes sense. So you're introducing a new molecule, which has um, a lot of uh, opportunities to interact. So as a result, the peptide elements organize themselves around that. So maybe I should stop here briefly because I'm, I'm gonna to go to the next step, but I'm, I'm afraid I may have lost one or two people already. So if there's anything I can clarify at this point, um, or shall I just uh, uh, continue? All good for me. Uh, anyone have any questions? I was just curious, um, when you say organize, um, is it like kind of like based on like um like charge versus like like polar versus nonpolar you know yeah. charge versus okay okay exactly exactly it's that so so you know uh so there's there's hydrogen bonds uh there's hydrophobicity there's charge uh there's uh, uh, uh pi pi interactions aromatic interactions so all of these together will will give rise so it's basically the same drivers that drive a protein to fold but now we don't have a one long chain. We have lots of small pieces, and they they organize themselves around this this ligand. Yeah, that's that was a that, that's a good question. So okay, so so we have a so we have an uh, an experiment, a test tube in Eppendorf, where now these things are organized. I'm just showing you cartoons right now, but I'm going to show you some data um, in a moment. So the next step is we now um, give so so we we now try to achieve this. We now try try to achieve that the elements can actually themselves adapt and change 
uh, in response to the challenge. So we, we do that by now adding an enzyme called uh, endoamidase. And what that is basically is an, an enzyme that can make and break bonds between uh, peptides. So remember, our elements are all these little dipeptides that can interact in different ways. So I'm on slide seven. Uh, so if you look in the top corner of slide seven, there is again the cartoon structure and then the chemical structure of one of the dipeptides. And then you have this endoamidase, which is an enzyme that can connect these dipeptides to form longer peptides. And that's a reversible reaction. So we can, we can, we can basically make and break peptide bonds so that we go from dipeptide to tetrapeptide and longer. So I'm only showing tetrapeptide, but it can go longer. The, the key now is that it does so, it, it doesn't do so normally. It's not favorable energetically to spontaneously make a peptide bond. Um, so in principle, the equilibrium of this reaction is to the left-hand side, where you basically have all the dipeptides. However, if the, 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 the molecule on the right-hand side, the tetrapeptide, somehow binds to something or aggregates is, or, or is in any way stabilized, the equilibrium can shift to the right. So what I'm what I'm saying here is that the the we now introduce a, a reversible chemistry into this system, where if the dipeptide doesn't interact and is not part of the system, it doesn't do anything. But if it becomes part of the system and is binding to something, it can basically make more more um, uh, make more complex. Uh, larger peptides. So we add this catalyst and we can now make um, new sequences. So I hope that makes sense. So that's all the pieces that we, we, we use. So what that looks like then is that, again, here's my cartoon. So uh, the, this is still slide seven. Um, you can see that some dipeptides are not really involved in the system on the outside. They're not interacting with anything. There's one in the top left corner. There's one in the top right corner. There's one kind of in the middle. And then in the center of the, the image, you can see that some of the gray black aggregating pieces start to um, assemble. And as a result, we can now start to see that connections are made using that enzyme between the peptide bonds. And you can see your formation of a hexapeptide. You can see that uh, um, three dipeptides are um, uh, binding together and it's driven by interactions with each other and with the ATP. So I hope, so this is kind of the, 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 the idea and the hypothesis. Can we make something like that work? So then um, Ankit comes in, uh, who's spent five years basically making this, uh, making this happen. And uh, with uh, uh, help from uh, this gentleman, Scott McPhee, who is an exceptional analytical chemist and who has helped us to figure out what's going on. I should say for the, for, for the chemists among you, you'll be very familiar with this. Chemists have a problem with mixtures. So chemists prefer to work on pure compounds. Uh, and also chemists tend to have a problem with, um, with uh, heterogeneity. Chemists tend to prefer to work in solutions. So if something is, doesn't dissolve, we have a problem. If there's too many, too many molecules in, in your sample, it's a mess. So, you know, this is for chemists quite a a, 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 a challenge and a, a change to try to look at how many molecules in one system work together instead of studying one molecule. So, um, so the, way, the, the way we do this is, uh, so, so Scott um, 
basically looked at the, the, the mixtures that, that, that we end up with, and um, he looked at the formation of these tetrapeptides. So as I said before, everything on the left is stuff that doesn't interact and doesn't do very much. And then on the, on the right, the tetrapeptides form only uh, when there's a reason for them to form. So you can see on slide eight, uh, things that I won't go to in, in any detail now, but basically you do chromatography. You, so you do your me messy experiment, you do chromatography, and then you use um, uh, computer-aided uh, analysis to basically pick out all the individual tetrapeptide peaks that are formed. And then you can basically start to map what's going on. So what you see um, in the bottom right corner on, on slide eight is intensity maps, uh, in intensity uh, fingerprints essentially of all the, the possible peptides that can form. And you can see that some of them are dark blue, which means they, they, they form because they interact. Others are uh, you know, white, uh, they don't form uh, much at all and others are somewhere in between. So this gives you an, an, a readout essentially of the, the complex system that we've been working with. Um, so Ankit uh, then did a, did a number of, of, uh, of very interesting experiments. So he started with a set of five dipeptides. The aggregation propensity of them is, is low so that, so they have the uh the, the 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 white piece of the you know the color dipeptides means low aggregation propensity and we, de we then have these different colors we introduce the atp and the endoamidase and then basically uh, how to read this is in blue are the the first dipeptides in in black uh the second so overall making making up the tetrapeptide and you can see in the absence of atp there is a certain distribution that forms and in the presence of 100 millimolar ATP, you can see that there is now um, upregulation of um, the upper right corner peptide, which is GRGR. And you can do a differential map where yellow basically means downregulated and blue means upregulated. So we have a readout now of um, uh, tetrapeptides that, that form and ones that don't form. And then he did the experiment again. And then he got a different result, as you can see here. So, if, so on, on slide eight still, uh, you can see a different distribution of blue. Um, the blues are slightly less intense, but there are more of them that light up. And that is, in the beginning, we found that very puzzling, but later on, we actually learned that this is inherent in a system of this level of complexity. Um, there are so many possible interactions that the, the system can find multiple ways to solve one problem. So in other words, we add ATP and this system is able to, to um, you know, compensate for that in multiple different ways. So it has multiple solutions to one problem. So that's not something that you would want or see very often in chemistry. And it's something very typical in biology, this idea of a stochastic uh, response. So we, you know, this is our first piece of evidence that we are kind of navigating a space that is somewhere between uh, chemistry and biology in terms of complexity. So then he moved on, so this is slide 10, to a system that also has assembly or higher aggregation propensity. So you can see now the, the second amino acid is black. In this case, we use valine instead of glycine, which has a, an, an, a level of assembly propensity. So that means that we have interactions with the ATP, but also 
uh, a tendency to form structure, to self-assemble, to form a structure. Now, if you look at this uh, from left to right, days one, two, three, four, six, and eight, with ATP, you can see over time clearly that there's a pattern kind of growing in. And while minus ATP, it kind of stays the same um, over time. And then you look at the difference map, the blue, yellow, and you can see even more pronounced that there is a cluster of uh, peptides that really are amplified in this case. And we can, we can follow that over time. Um, so this is now on the right-hand side of slide 10. In the absence of ATP, you can see peptides form. So there's four, uh, three shown here, but in total there's, there's 25. And you can see that they, they kind of stay, uh, the levels stay the same without the ATP. But with the ATP, you can see the green one goes down. The pink one keeps going up. And that means that it is basically recruiting more and more material to make more of itself. And it's starting to essentially, um, uh, it's not exactly a replicator, but it starts to make more copies of itself, that uh, VK, VH peptide. And ultimately that leads to formation of actual objects. So the, the uh, kind of fuzzy uh, microscopy image that you see before is, is, is taken from a very complex mixture. That's why it's not the most beautiful microscopy. You can see a lot of these little uh, dots, these little objects um, appear, and they in turn are uh, uh, nucle nucleation sites to make even longer peptides of specific sequence. So what we're doing here is we start with, you know, uh, these, these five dipeptides that themselves uh, have some code uh, inside them. But as we assemble, and over time, we, we, we build in more and more complexity. So the self-organization leads to sequence selective enhanced oligomerization. So we don't tell this thing what to do. It figures itself out and starts to amplify formation of certain peptides. And this is uh, spontaneous. So, uh, you know, there was a comment made earlier about origin of life Re relevant. Sorry, did someone have a question? Oh, did I even interrupt the origin of life? No, yeah. um, <laughs> no question. The, the, the length scale on the microscopy? What, um, uh, oh, yeah, sorry. That is, um, oh, uh, I think that is most likely a, um, a 100 nanometer scale bar. I think okay. these, these little objects that you form are, are you know, in the, in the nano scale. Nice, yeah. nice. Okay. <laughs> And then, yeah, then, and then the, the, the last thing I'll, I'll show is um, uh, the, 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 the most complex experiment we've done, the slide 11. Now we use all 15 dipeptides. So we have a mixture of 15 dipeptides uh, with three different aggregation propensities, mix them all together, add the ATP and the enzyme. The first experiment does, uh, looks at a difference in, in, in um, temperature where you can see, so on slide 11, you're now looking at 225 tetrapeptides. They're all form, we can detect them all. They're all interacting in this little um, uh, reaction vessel. And as you can see, uh, by, by comparing the experiment at two different temperatures, we can clearly see a gradient from yellow to blue. And that gradient goes with the aggregation propensity. Then the, 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 the one next to that, the, the map next to that uh, actually goes, um, shows you what happens in the presence and absence of ATP. And you can now clear, well, I can see it clearly because I've looked at this so many times, but hopefully you can see that there's little blue islands form and, um, and that there's also an overall gradient. So again, the overall gradient is from, from yellow 
in the top left corner to more blue in the bottom right corner, but also you see very clearly island um, uh, form. So these patterns here are essentially, I mean, they're not QR codes clearly, but there are readouts there. Uh, and it's not digital. It's not like um, one zero. Each, each uh, kind of pixel has information over the amount of, of peptide that's formed. And this is a unique, so every, every situation will give you a unique like fingerprint or, or readout. And that's, that's what we think is, is pretty exciting about this. Um, so then if you look at the, uh, this, this is actually going to appear in, uh, it's, uh, the, the paper is in press right now. It will be in the June issue of um, Cell Press uh, Chemistry Flagship Journal Chem. And um, so we're, we, uh, we, 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 we heard that we, um, we will feature on the cover uh, which is kind of exciting. So the picture you see on the right-hand side is kind of an artist's impression of our experiment. And for those of you who paid attention in the beginnings, we're in we're in based in New York. So this is meant to we we put like a little central park inside there to make this look like uh, uh, the city we love. But it's also a representation of the um, up and down regulation of these individual peptides. So with that, um, I do hope that I haven't confused. <laughs> Everybody, um, we the next steps. We think that this is the start of something very interesting. Uh, we've shown the structures. Uh, we've shown the beginning of structures that can respond to changing conditions through sequence ad adaptation. Um, we've shown the beginnings of using this as complex sensing. Uh, these complex mixtures will give a, a different readout depending on whatever you throw at it. So it is a, a, a unique fingerprinting approach even though it's complicated uh it ultimately the readout should be easily uh, interpretable uh, we're thinking about things like chemical memory because we we are building um uh, we're building in a similar way in some ways to how memories are created by you know uh, uh interaction paths and if we repeat the same paths over and over again we think we can do something with chemical memory so uh, yeah, the idea is, you know, you take biology's building blocks, the amino acids, essentially forget about what biology did with them, but restart the, the whole the whole journey and uh, do chemical and functional information processing to make um, new uh, materials. So the last slide, um, slide 13, is acknowledgement. So that's our, our team. You can see um, Ankit standing actually next to me. You can also see there's a cake uh on the table and that this was actually Ankit uh, um, uh, finished his work in, in my lab a few months ago so this was his leaving party and then there's the uh, the funders so uh yeah with that's where, what i have to share with you so um very happy i don't know if Ankit is able to unmute to help me with the q and a uh, i see he's back um but uh, yeah happy to uh, to discuss and i see Ankit has unmuted so uh, I think we, uh, I'm going to have some help with the Q&A. So thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this really amazing presentation. Um, such a amazing basic science work. <laughs> like, the, um, that is uh, so interesting. So, Ankit, uh, welcome. Um, do you have something to add that you would like to share first? Okay, uh, please flash your mics and go ahead with questions, everyone. Thank you.
So um, my question is, um, it seems like a very stochastic process that's very exciting because I think that means there's a lot of potential for synthesis. You briefly mentioned that there was multiple solutions to any one problem. What was the kind of rate of divergence or however it is that you quantified that kind of um, process? Because I'm thinking, you know, we throw a bunch of things into uh, a test tube and then we set the right initial conditions and boundary conditions and perhaps there's a certain sink or source uh, of either heat or energy as in the case that uh, you did with ATP so uh, I'm just very fascinated with kind of the richness of that complex space um, but it seems like a very treacherous space and it seems very unforgiving so if you could comment on that briefly if possible yeah yeah no problem i mean i think uh the best yeah uh so so uh we have done um it, it something that we actually wanted to start to put a number on and uh you know essentially repeat the experiment not like you know three or four times but maybe 20 times to really get a feel for how stochastic is this and you know uh, are there three solutions that can be binned or are there, you know, really an infinite number of, of solutions? Um, so what we've observed, we, we've done, you know, of course, publishing in a, in, in, in a nice journal, we had to make sure that every experiment was done multiple times. Um, so if you, um, if you look in the supplementary information of, of this, this paper, uh, these, these, um, the last experiments that I mentioned, where we started with 15 uh, dipeptides and end up with 225 tetrapeptides, um, they, the overall patterns look, look very similar. So that idea of the gradient and those little islands coming up. But if you look at the, the detail, it is really actually remarkably, uh, different. So, you know, I, you can look at this in two ways. So you can focus on the fact that individual foot. So if you follow an individual tetrapeptide, uh, you can see things that are quite different. But the collective, the overall pattern that comes out is very, very similar. Um, so, I, so we actually talk in the paper about robustness, and actually we say that these systems are robust in that they can essentially solve um, a problem in multiple ways that are that give a very, very similar ultimate uh, ultimate uh, outcome. If you see what I mean. But yeah, if you're looking for a system that will give you precisely the same result every time this is inherently not it and it's exactly you know when you try to teach a chemist uh, to do biology this is exactly the frustration that you you know cells don't ever do exactly the same thing because and that's because of the stochastic nature so yeah i think it's um, i think as you 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 nicely summarized it's both a it's a feature of the system and it is um, it's good and bad at the same time i guess it makes it robust in 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 a way um but it it does mean that you you are unlikely to find the exact same result twice i think biology is 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 like that and again if you want to make the connection with the origin of life um uh, you know having having some variability in how you can solve a problem is is is, is probably a key thing to you know adaptation and and uh, biology Anke, do you want to add something to this Um, I think Ankit is um, uh, posting in the chat because his microphone is not working. Oh, okay. So I, so, I can't actually see the chat, but... Uh, yeah. Um, oh, I can see the chat. Yes. You can. 
Yeah. Right. So thank you. Thank you very much. sometimes exiting the app and then re-entering it may uh, help he, with. He tried uh, already. Um, Ankit, are you maybe at the university? Because sometimes when you use the Wi-Fi from a public um space like a university or hospital or so they kind of block some features from social media so if you use your um, cell phone um, data plan it usually then works we had that before with some guest speakers yeah and and just to make sure that, that we're not missing obvious things the bottom right hand is the unmute uh, feature and if you're wearing potentially a headset that might not be great either This is yes, sorry. loud and clear. Finally, oh, yes. the famous. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry. Hey, no problem, uh, Ankit. I'm glad you're here. To uh, you know, it's going to get difficult from here on. I'm sure as the questions get hard, <laughs> so, just on time. Nice to uh, nice you. So uh, yes, uh, to answer the question, uh, Ryan actually summed it up nicely. And as I mentioned in the comments. Uh, the stochastic nature is unforgiving, and that is um, one of the things that was actually not observed in, I should say, the traditional chemical origins of life, in the sense that if you start from simpler components, you are never going to get very definite answers. This is just the reality of the landscape, which is something what we observed and had not been observed before. And what that forces us to see is that when the components are small, that means if the stochastic nature is higher, you look at the global components of the ensemble and not, not sort of home down on single singular components. And that's why what we do is that of the heat maps that Ryan showed, we do a principal component analysis on it so that each heat map is essentially a single point on that analysis. And it tells us how one uh, mixture is uniquely different from the other. This is how we separate mixtures essentially. Uh, so that sort of works. And yes, it is unforgiving, but that is essentially the reality and something what chemical origins of life had to go through as well, most probably. So, uh, so to follow up on that, is it likely that, because uh, I think one of the hypotheses that I always found controversial was, you know, the tree of life, that there was one common ancestor. I always tend to be in the basket of, uh, yeah, there's probably many bushes of life. And uh, I'm not sure if your work supports that, but if you could comment on how the, the nature of the origin of life uh, perhaps pertains to this. Um, yeah. I, I, so, so Anka, do you want to give your, your take? Uh, yes. So uh, the, the, the last, uh, universe, so that uh, common ancestor is essentially last universal common ancestor, that's called. Uh, the, the kind of chemical origin of light that looks at is actually much, be, much before that. So last universal common ancestor is then that particular uh, bacteria or cell uh, is actually life at that moment. This looks at, or our work or work similar to such as this, look at times much before that in which there was stochasticity but that sort of got amplified and concentrated into very few uh, sequences very few functional sequences so yes the luca uh, or the uh, last universal common ancestor could have been actually not that diverse 
Uh, again, that is uh, obviously up for debate because that sort of research has not been done. But for certain, the previous mixtures, something that was the makeup of life, they were certainly much, much more diverse. And they went through this concentration mechanism. And something that Ryan explained as well, in which what we actually see is that dipeptides form tetrapeptides form these nanostructures, which then magnify similar hexapeptides, essentially. So what's happening is that uh, once a functionality is honed in, it sort of is amplifying on its own, the, like the sums uh, sort of stuff that looks like itself. So uh, did I answer the question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this kind I, of reminds me of uh, work done by Lee Cronin, where his molecular assembly uh, kind of uh, addresses one point of pre-selection, that it wasn't just all natural selection, it was a lot of pre-selection bias in the geochemistry or the other kinds of uh, chemistry that existed beforehand. So this is interesting because it seems to suggest that all the building blocks kind of converge. Uh, and that's very fascinating because I think that's very hopeful for the rest of the universe. So maybe we have neighbors nearby. I wanted to add that we had a Dr. Sergei uh, Krasnokutsky here from the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy. And um, he presented this recent paper of how uh, peptides in space um, are formed on stardust. He like experimentally showed this through condensation of atomic carbon it's really so he said basically it wouldn't be really special if peptides would form on stardust um serena you were here in the room um so yeah it's it's yeah. really interesting yeah oh, go ahead doctor yeah oh go ahead so I, I so I think um, since you mentioned Lee uh, Lee Cronin's work, I mean we we actually were um, inspired by a, a paper that he he published um, in um, maybe maybe two or three years ago now um, that actually shows that um, you can you can do reversible condensation uh, reactions and make um, peptide mixtures that become uh, dependent different dependent on their their context. And um, I think in our case, what we can show, we, 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 I think we have the first example here of actual formation of, in, of, of specific sequences. So out of all the possible, you know, we, we showed that uh, uh, 225 tetrapeptide sequences, some of them are amplified, other ones are not. But it gets more interesting because the ones that are amplified then in turn amplify formation of hexapeptides of specific sequence. So we start to see spontaneous formation of sequence and that is clearly uh, key to origin of life questions where you know making a, a you know finding amino acids on on uh, meteorites and finding short peptides is one thing but then actually going from there to longer sequences that then have eventually function and and folds that is um, that is another you know another uh, challenge that's not clear exactly how that uh, will have happened and i think showing that this can happen spontaneously purely based on things like interaction and aggregation and reversibility is uh, is interesting to us but yeah it, it, it definitely supports that uh, origin of life is clearly messy and heterogeneous uh, but out of that mess, at some point, some order needs to needs to emerge, and uh, I guess that's that's what we're 
we're looking at. I mean, I, I'd like to say again, our objective is not to figure out the origins of life, but we do feel that there is some uh, some parallels there, definitely. That's awesome. Yeah, Lee's work is definitely inspiring to many people, myself included. So uh, he's always up to some uh, crazy new scientific model or something. Uh, and his work on molecular assembly talked about this in principle. And I recall when I was uh, an undergrad, we talked about the dogma of the stochastic nature of the emergence of life, but it was never demonstrated. So it's nice to see some of these, um, I guess, principles or things that we took for granted for a long time actually be uh, either verified or not. And uh, yeah, I, I'm just curious what other potential possible combinations, although this would be empirically intensive, uh, I think one of the things that Lee is doing is saying, okay, well, we have some data from another planet. How do those initial conditions and boundary conditions and other elements affect the possible things that could emerge on that planet? And could they go as far as our system has gone? So very fascinating work. Thank you for the last, for the last question. I promise. Thanks. Well, you know, um, what's so fascinating about this, um, this opening in complexity that, that you've presented is there's there's so many other knobs to tweak. There's, a, you know, used ATP, for example, there's all sorts of other structures that could be uh, templates to, you know, uh, aggregation. The nature of the enzyme, you know, uh, you could modify the enzyme and, and have it select for, you know, different different ranges of chemistry. But what gets really cool is when you start to form these or run these aggregation experiments and condensation experiments in um, in the in the presence of previous products. So that um, taking the spontaneous products that you know emerged in or resulted in in one case and have those present in you know slight variations of another. So in essence, you would find spontaneous uh, quaternary structure, perhaps for, form and um, wouldn't it be cool if you got enzymatic activity? But uh, you know, lots of really just cool variations to to explore. Yeah, I mean, to be to be honest, probably. Uh, um, I mean, it may be it may be obvious to some. Uh, our our objective initially was actually uh, to make the whole thing fueled by ATP. So that's why we picked ATP as the the uh, you know the the. The, the molecule, the ligand of, of, of interest here. The idea was that, and I, I still think that's possible. We've just not achieved it yet in this first paper. But if the ATP then also gets, so you, 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 you build up these peptide structures, they build up around the ATP. And then, then if eventually they start to hydrolyze the ATP, the, the whole system should, you know, revert back to the original um, uh, equilibrium position. So you then have a an essentially an ATP fueled uh, system that that gains um, uh, function and complexity uh, in the presence of ATP. And as ATP runs out, it goes back to its ground state. So that was the objective. Now the the ATP hydrolysis. I think it's entirely possible to get enzyme activity to emerge in these things, but we probably need to do a few other things like uh, maybe add some metals or or rethink our uh, starting library uh, but uh, that is that would be a, a really amazing um, uh, thing to achieve so i think we want to you know aggregation and assembly is one thing but uh, there are other certainly other biological functions that you can think of uh, that we can can mimic so uh, i agree um, uh, it would be it would be very exciting if we can use 
this approach and then a catalyst emerges that amplifies things further. Ultimately, we'd love to do this whole thing without, you know, the actually adding an enzyme and get the system to figure it out itself. I mean, it, it in, in principle should be possible, but uh, we're, we're not there yet. I had a question um, dealing with like, I guess the, the whole enzyme. Um, I think it was like endoaminase or something like that, right? Yeah. So um, my question is like, uh, you said that uh, what you guys saw was like, when you add the enzyme to the uh, solution that had the peptides and the ATP that like, um, you saw um, the enzyme reaction sh shift to the right. So I was wondering, like, it, do, you, do you know if that's, like, due to, like, maybe, like, the lowering of the activation energy needed for that enzyme to go to the right? Or maybe if it's, like, the organization caused by the ATP, like, sterically put the, uh, the peptides in a... a a, a way where the enzyme is more effective to yeah that's a that's a great question so i guess what you're asking is is this a a, a kinetic effect or a thermodynamic effect or or um so why 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 are you able to shift the the equilibrium from left to right so yeah we call it endoamidase i mean it's a protease but we selected a protease that does not like to cleave at the end of um, a, a, a peptide chain. So that makes sure that our dipeptides stay intact because otherwise the thing becomes too complex to, to analyze reasonably by mass spec. So by using an endoamidase, we can basically connect and disconnect dipeptides. So that, that um, but it's, yeah. Um, but normally amidases hydrolyze peptide bonds so you know you would you would not necessarily expect when you mix dipeptides together and you add a protease or an amidase uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect to, to find oligomerization you would expect you know hydrolysis that's what proteases do but that equilibrium position is actually not so far from you know equilibrium constant of, of one so making and breaking peptide bonds is um, uh, energetically uh, the the equilibrium position is 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 is, is not so far removed um, uh, between the, the you know the the the, the, the dipeptides in this this case and the tetrapeptides. What makes it favorable to hydrolyze and the reason why proteases hydrolyze peptide bonds is mostly the ionization of the products. So you've got the amide bond, which is not charged, and you then you hydrolyze it into an acid and an amine, and at neutral pH, that becomes highly ionized, and that basically drives it to hydrolysis. So when the so but that 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 is a reversible reaction. But when the the tetrapeptide in this case is stabilized by by self-assembly uh, or by by binding to ATP that basically adds in a, a free energy contribution. And if you think in terms of like a free energy landscape, it would lower that that well in the free, uh, in the free energy landscape, which means that that now becomes favorable. So in other words, uh, you know, uh, peptides are hydrolyzed by proteases, 
However, if the the peptide is uh, stabilized, it can actually go the other way. That's what we're showing. So it's not really to do with the enzyme itself being, you know, uh, lowering uh, uh, the, the the enzyme lowers the the the, um, the activation barrier for sure, as enzymes do. But not, uh, there's nothing special about the ATP or anything like that. It's basically the 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 free energy of the 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 precursors versus the product that that you play with um i hope that helps it was a it was a very good question I'm, I'm not sure if my answer was very clear i'm a little confused but i'll, I'll think about it <laughs> yeah i mean i i think i think what might help so we we published a paper that i think will will, will help the understanding where you basically start with dipeptides and you show that that if the the product the the oligomer peptide product has a tendency to self-assemble, you can basically drive this reaction all the way to the to, to the peptide. However, if the, the peptide doesn't have a tendency to self-assemble, it hydrolyzes. So essentially self-assembly dictates whether you get uh, condensation versus hydrolysis. Gotcha. Thank you. I had a question. Uh, first, thank you for your amazing presentation going through it i was confused by the concept of stoastic and that stochastic rather that being random and versus the idea that under certain conditions things are not random i'm confused <laughs> what am i missing anka do you want to take that one Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, so let me just put two things in this context. So, stochastic uh, nature that we observe is, for example, um, the we mix five dipeptides in a reaction, and there is ATP in the reaction, uh, and uh, the products that come out are always so ATP is actually negatively charged. And the products that actually come out uh, that get amplified in almost all of the cases are positively charged or, you know, in some cases they are with aromatic, but they are still positively charged. So stochasticity in our case is the relative con concentrations of the positive charge systems. So we always see that the products that are amplified they're always positively charged, which means that you know these are products that bind to a negatively charged ATP. However, what we see variation in, and that's where the randomness sort of comes in, is the actual concentration of these uh, uh, tetrapeptides. So what we see is like, for example, uh, sometimes, and uh, sorry for mentioning some uh, chemical uh, amino acid names here, if you're not familiar, but for example, there is amino, uh, sorry, aromatic amino acid histidine, and there are these positive, uh, positively charged amino acids, which is lysine and arginine. So what we see sometimes is that you have higher percentages of combinations of aromatic and positively charged amino acids, but sometimes there is a higher uh, concentration of just two positively charged species. However, in the overall uh, uh, ensemble, the mixture is still that binds to ATP. So the con the the randomness and the con uh, the sort of convergence is these two aspects in which there is convergence in the function in which 
uh, ultimately what's actually converging is the pos positively charged sequence, but what might vary is the kind of sequence that is getting amplified. That's where the randomness or stochastic nature is. Uh, did that answer the question? Sorry. Yes, 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 absolutely. Very clear now, thank you. Yeah, just to add to that, because it's really fascinating here, in the sense that um, the the progression of the reaction affects the outcome, in the sense that if certain uh, peptides are going to aggregate, um, they, they alter the free energy landscape of what what can happen, and you can. I mean, it's a very complex space, but but the um, you know there's uh, there. In essence, the, the history of the evolving, the progression of the system changes that landscape because it makes available different aggregates and different assemblies that may have impact in what's likely to react next. That is, um, that is a really very, very accurate comment. <laughs> Thank you. That, yeah, I think that's exactly what, what, what and therefore, um, you know, you can, uh, so, so history and time is going to be really interesting in, in this because we, you probably noticed that the the um, the data that I shared, uh, we had tetrapeptides, uh, you know, um, increasing in 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 their concentration over the period of eight days, and you know, it, we, for for these experiments, it wasn't really reasonable to go beyond like a week, but you can clearly, you know, what there's good, there's questions about what happens if you keep doing this. And I think the comment was made previously. Also, you can start to seed other things, right? So you, you have control here. So you can add other things over time and basically see how this things thing continuously evolves and develop, develops more, more complexity and gets, gets rid of essentially things that don't interact. So, so it is a, um, um, I think it's a system that can also lead us to, to, you know, just, just unexpected things that, you, you know, it, uh, in over, over longer periods of time, it may well be possible to make things that are significantly more complex. I think the, the most complex, uh, so Ankit, remind me, the, the longest peptides that you found of specific sequence, they were they were more than ten amino acids, I think, right? Yes, yes. So I think I think eventually you you can you can really get uh, the new functions and e even folds because these things are too short to fold. In that case, you know they they, they don't have any secondary structures, uh, but uh, eventually they'll come long become long enough and they fold and they start to do new things uh, potentially. You know, it'd be interesting, um, and of course, you, you know, you can sort of think of ways to perturb and, you know, try different systems here. Um, but one, one interesting variation might be in terms of oscillating the pH over, you know, a, a long time scale to, to maybe as aggregations form, it, it, you know, what's left on the surface um, may be more exposed or it may change things. and. Uh, um, and in possibly, you know, altering the, um, you know, wet dry cycles in essence, um, to dry, drive, um, you know, either favor condensation or favor, uh, hydrolysis. Um, but there's, yeah, there's just so many things to do with the system. It's fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's true. We we, we, we have, um, and, and actually we still haven't exactly implemented that, but we thought that this would be, I mean, the, 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 the complete the hydration, dehydration is, um, is interesting, but it's also, it also makes things, um, that's not really a reversible system. So we, I think in terms of the, the, the ability to make and break amide bonds and not get any like unusual, um, you know, side chain interactions or anything like that. Um, I think our preferred way forward is to continue to work in, in an aqueous environment. But, but I think things like uh, thermal cycling can also be very interesting. So where you essentially use a PCR-like setup, um, you know, you can just have a heat block that that cycles periodically between high and low. And then basically you assemble, disassemble, assemble, disassemble continuously while you also allow for this condensation. I think interesting things will happen in a, in a situation like that. Have you, have you start to learn, I, you know, I don't want to hog the stage. If there's any questions, please flash your mic or, or speak up. Um, uh, but in terms of, um, have you started to look to uh, possible ways of uh, functional readouts or um, integrating, um, you know, more type of uh, sensors uh, to uh, into the system to interact with it and play with it at um, at that nanometer scale, either optically or uh, electronically or uh, any of that yeah i mean we've we've uh, we 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 have thought quite a bit about this um i mean there are of course the the system hasn't be doesn't have to be restricted to amino acids you know we can we can actually we have the liberty to do whatever we like right so it's not because especially because we we're not necessarily trying to solve origin of life questions we're also trying to just make create new ways of uh, making adaptive materials you know simply the concept of having a material that behaves differently depending on its context is uh, can be pretty attractive if you have to put a material system in a unknown environment and the material can adapt to that environment that that you know it's it's a little bit like thinking about a material with a metabolism built in that's that's another way of looking at this besides, you know, the, the origin of life idea. So if you have a material with a metabolism built in, that material can express different properties depending on, on the, uh, on the context. And we've done previous work, um, on, you know, looking at electronic properties of supermolecular materials, catalytic properties of supermolecular materials, optical properties, uh, like fluorescence, and those would all be you know, reasonable readouts of this. So you could, for example, build in deliberately a um, uh, like a semiconductor component, organic semiconductor components in your peptide mixture, and then basically see how uh, con c conduction emerges and how you can maybe make a conducting network that responds to um, its uh, context. Or you can indeed think about a fluorescence readout where, you know, binding um, gives rise to, you know, reorganization that gives, gives a fluorescence change. And as we mentioned earlier, like catalysis is an interesting one. So I, I think that's true that the, 
also the impact of this work in, term, in, in the material science area will be, um, you know, that, that will come, I think, when we can show adaptive function. So there's many ways to do this. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of ways to make functional structures based on self-assembling systems. And, you know, we can basically steal some of those ideas and build it into uh, the system here. So that's uh, hopefully what the what the future will uh, will bring. But we don't have any. Um, yeah, we have plans, but no, no, no specific examples in that area yet. Um, I wanted to ask, I think I'm not sure if I asked you before, if you know Dr. Michael Patini's work where he showed this dipole, dipole long range electrodynamic intermolecular forces of up to a thousand angstroms. I think it, it would be interesting. Like, do you think yes. that these are yes. the forces that, um, mm -hmm. that basically regulate these um, self organizing um, properties? Um, so I'm not I'm not familiar with that work. Ankit, are you are you familiar with this work? Uh, no, I'm not actually. Uh, I can I can comment on it a little bit. Uh, it's a photonic effect that combines RF uh, radiation and photonics to allow long range molecular interactions that would otherwise not form uh, at the scale of about a thousand angstroms. And this is interesting because the Earth has a magnetic field that's somewhat uh, oscillatory. Uh, there's light energy that has some oscillatory uh, function. So um, for, for life, those seem to be two important recipes. And empirically, uh, recently, they've shown that there is some compounding effect that promotes the forming of certain bonds uh, uh, if, if the effect is uh, uh, adequately um, modulated. So uh, it was actually work that really fascinated us because I think it, Typically, people think of, oh, yeah, RF, yeah, I'm not going to get coronavirus from 5G, but there's actually more to the story. It's more nuanced. Of course, we're always lifting the minimum floor energy, like the, 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 the kind of minimum binding energies kind of increase with this extra additional energy, and it helps form some of these other bonds, but only when you have these two forces or, or sources of energy in tandem. Uh, and it was so fascinating. I had to reach out to, I believe his name was Marco, right, uh, Katerina? So uh, very, very fascinating work. Uh, you, should okay. send, you should send the reference, Katerina. Yeah, I send it in the chat and, and direct message to both of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll take a look at that. I mean, it sounds, um, it sounds, it sounds interesting. I mean, I have to have a proper look at it before I can say anything meaningful, I guess. But uh, it sounds, I mean, any, any, um, uh, externally applied um you know field or or you know so we really believe that these systems uh, that we've developed here will res they'll basically respond to to anything you throw at at it whether it's uh, chemical or physical or 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 waves and uh, you know i think all of that is interesting so uh, yeah i'd like to take a look at that work and uh, we'll, we'll what, what's what's really cool to add to this work is um, what what he found was it was the resonant the vibrational modes within these say okay say you have your your complex assemblies they have vibrational modes and to the extent that those uh, dipoles will oscillate what he found is uh, for aggregates that will have these vibrational modes and have these oscillating dipole dipole interactions 
if the frequencies are much different, it's a one over R to the sixth, and it's you know, it's fairly non-specific. But as the frequencies start to match, it becomes more of a one over R to the third, and that's where you get the long range attraction. So what the observable would be is there'd be in a tendency for uh, clusters of similar resonance frequencies to aggregate, which would be really cool in your system. Yeah. Because it would drive further ag ag aggregation without the without an external force. These would just be the natural modes of the system that was produced. Yeah, yeah, we're go we're going to take a look at this. That sounds that sounds really really very interesting. Yeah, we found it very compelling. Uh, we're we're probably going to set up a, a verification experiment here on our end just to see if we can reproduce the same kind of. Uh, data because uh, there is like a high frequency laser involved and a few other things so it takes a while to get all those toys together but uh, it's exciting nevertheless because it represents not only uh, a new phenomenon but also you know you let your imagination go wild and you think of all these therapies and interventions that could result or ways that we could stabilize disease so it's it's very exciting work Yeah, please, if anyone has um, more questions, please go ahead. Dr. Shah, you didn't have a chance to speak yeah. yet. I mean, thank you so much, Raina and Anki. That was fascinating work. And my question, um, I mean, back to the human body, I mean, not that much further about the dipole. So because when we want to think about that, there is a different type of the, I mean, modulation that we can use it. For example, one of the modulation is the electrophil modulation that we can think about that, about the selectivity and drug design. But what is interesting about your work, I was thinking about the, I mean, kind of adaptive or training the immune system based upon your work, because I, I see this capacity in this work. And I was just wondering, did you think about that or not? So uh, let me let me make sure I understand your question. So you uh, you you said training the immune system. Yes, I mean uh, well, for example, you know that we have two, two types of the immunity: innative and adaptive. So in the adaptive immune system, as long as you came with the assembly, self assembly, based upon whatever you you mentioned, so there's supposed to be optimization, right? When yeah. it happened, it means that there is optimization happen. But you didn't mention, for example, in a human body or in vivo, we are talking about what part? Are we talking about, uh, for example, tight junction, gap, or I mean, cell membrane, or where we can use it? That was just my question out of curiosity. Yeah, I mean, I th I think we're we're quite even though we of course use um, the same building building blocks that that the immune system uses. So there is there is I I think a connection there uh, down the line, um, and we are able to to scramble you know sequences, and our sequences should select for um, you know binding, which could be an antigen. So I think there there could be. There could be a connection uh, there. I mean, in fact, one one of the ways we reasons why we started this work, Ankit will remember this <laughs> very well. Um, in in the beginning, we were actually hoping to find single unique sequences. So, 
instead we ended up finding you know systems that collectively adapt to like a ligand like atp but our original plan was to use this setup to identify single peptide sequences that bind that have an affinity for anything you throw at it and i think that's still a possibility um for this but you you the 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 systems level idea become is, is i think then it becomes a little bit different from from how i guess the immune system would would tackle this so it, it, it you know it there's a similarity in the fact that we use chemical information to find ligands but in our case it comes from many molecules working together rather than unique sequences or you know uh emerging uh over time so i think i think there's a connection but uh uh you know as a as a as a as a way to perhaps uh as an alternative or a way to find um uh you know antigen binders i'm i'm, I'm not sure if this is um going to outperform antibodies anytime soon but it's uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, like how you know the, the 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 collective chemical complexity can you know bec does become a unique uh, binding situation, like an antibody. It's just composed of many different uh, dynamic pieces in this case. So yeah, I like. I like we can thing. do as yeah. long as we can do deletion, we can do injection. I mean, right. There is both ways possible. That's why I asked that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's an it, it's it's an interesting um, an interesting way to to think about it. I'd, I'd have to give that some more thought. I think this is very promising for any sort of synthesis that we want to engage in the future, because everything else is either labor intensive, either humans or process intensive, and this is kind of uh, 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 an interesting uh, solution that kind of seemed like just a noisy place to be. So. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it's I think it's very wonderful. Um, I'd, I'd like to uh, ask you uh, more questions, of course, uh, if possible. I'd like to connect with you and kind of uh, shoot out some of my stupid questions, if I may, if that's possible. Of course, awesome. Of course, I, I think the 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 you know the green chemistry uh, connection that you're hinting at, I guess, is 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 definitely a big driver for us. So you know this this paper is one you know one area of our uh, research but the the general idea that you can make make oligomers that you can basically do polymerizations in in water using using enzymes and get specific sequence is is in itself very very promising um because uh, you know i guess we all probably agree that a bio-based um future would be would be great where where most things are made of things that are you know inherently biodegradable and sustainable and uh, and made from from uh, you know ultimately materials that come that you can produce from co2 co2 and and light um so so i think the uh, the green chemistry connection is is definitely um is definitely there for us uh, if you can learn how to really drive building blocks to specific products as a synthetic approach i think it's um, it's going to be very promising Reminds me of a recent Star Trek. They had something called programmable matter, 
and uh, they they had a very interesting kind of spin on that. So if you haven't already, uh, uh, check out Star Trek Discovery, or uh, you know, I have to also promote the recent one, uh, Strange New Worlds. Both really good. I often find scientists are in the lab and working on something, and sometimes it's hard to see where this could be applied. So one question that I think that is, is kind of a an ended question in terms of the applications. Uh, the, the kind of question that uh, I think um, they, they, there's this person who worked for the government, they, were, they went from lab to lab and their job, his name escapes me momentarily, so my apologies to the individual, but uh, <laughs> he would go to the lab and he would ask grad students and professors, uh, where do you see this work in 70 years? So if I may, if that's something that you have thought of, if not, <laughs> then, then perhaps another day. But if you were to see the long range limit, what, what's the kind of fantastical scenario that you see? So did you say 70 as in seven zero? Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to see that far. So even okay. my, my, my criticism was also that. I was like, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I think it's it's nice to speculate. And, you know, um, uh, I mean, okay, the, the, the dream, well, the dream. I mean, so one thing that I often start when I talk to uh, people about our, you know, how our work can be relevant so you know i really i really truly believe that you can make anything from uh, biological building blocks anything um so you think about your cell phone uh, which is clearly a highly complex device um wouldn't it be wonderful if you can make a cell phone uh, just from uh, fully biodegradable and sustainable components i.e a biodegradable cell phone where all the pieces are made of um, of of uh, you know something that resembles proteins. I mean, with the proteins we know today, that's never going to happen because those proteins have been optimized for aqueous uh, conditions. Um, they uh, and they don't perform the you know they don't perform the functions that we're looking for. But if you take the twenty amino acid building blocks and basically say forget biology and you actually start to evolve things in new ways that don't involve for example an aqueous context it's unlikely that you know your future biodegradable phone will be made from components that that are aqueous compatible uh, actually they probably shouldn't be and we currently don't know how to optimize and evolve proteins that are especially suited for non-aqueous um, and, and uh, conditions. So that's, that's one example where I think the types of uh, the methodology we're developing, we're, what, we, what we discussed today is all done in aqueous media. But you can do the same experiment in a non-aqueous solvent. So you take out the hydrophobic effects and you actually start to make structures that are really potentially useful for use in non-aqueous conditions. So my point is that I think 70 years down the line, Hopefully we will have worked out how to use um, biological space, sequence space, but explore completely different areas. You know, biology only covers a very, very small part of all the, the sequence space available in, in proteins. All the other parts remain to be explored and, um, and, and they can lead to new technology and they can ultimately lead to things like, you know, displays and electronics and and everything else so yeah 70 years down the line if um, you know i think it's probably essential actually that most things are are made from from something that's fully uh, you know circular economy biodegradable um, and made from from biocompatible building blocks and i really hope that our methods can can help you know the design of these new structures
that that uh, so yeah that would be um that would be my answer i don't know Ankit, if you want to you want to add something to that um so uh, ryan uh, obviously gave a, a a long-term picture of it essentially answering the question uh I, if i may i'd like to give perhaps uh not a 70-year picture but a shorter range thing uh to it uh, uh so one of the questions i mean from the questions asked and something that we brain uh, we brainstormed as well is that how to actually look at how to amplify specific sequences uh let's say for example one of the questions was that uh about antigen binding or you know other functional questions as well that would not require essentially an ensemble to work but a specific particular peptide to be amplified um uh, and we uh, that was uh, as mentioned was the initial goal of our project but uh, to brainstorm how to get there uh, essentially what we have to do is uh, the polymerization process that goes from dimer to let's say longer uh, peptides uh, should not is currently stuck thermodynamically uh, to tetrapeptides uh, hexapeptides and you get diminishing yields of uh, polypeptides as you go along and that is one of the major hurdles that perhaps we would need to cross. Uh, if uh, uh, and that is something that uh, uh, Ryan's lab is working towards is to cross it so that you get higher and higher oligomers to it. And one way actually to get there uh, and uh, is actually to engineer the enzyme itself so that uh, that sort of is the restriction of uh, the th thermodynamic restriction essentially is driven towards a faster oligomerization process uh, and uh, a much more energetically possible uh, oligomerization process. Uh, that is something I think would be a major breakthrough in our, and I, Ryan's lab is working towards it, but not exactly enzyme engineering, but you know, oligomerization of it. But that would be the, I think the next level of breakthrough in this work, which would allow you to allow our system to, you know, go from this fuzzy uh, stochastic regime to specific uh, sequence regime in which you would, as mentioned, you know, you could look at quaternary structures amplifying and such. So uh, that, that would be for the material sides, material science side of it. I think that would be a challenge that I would look forward to essentially uh, coming from Ryan's lab. How <laughs> very generous of you to pass on the work to the next generation. <laughs> it's like this is left as an exercise for the next student. But yes, I agree. I think it's uh, it's an interesting concept. I think the controlling aspect is uh, definitely very difficult. Uh, but the the person that we just mentioned a few moments ago, I think that represents an interesting avenue because it's not introducing another chemical, but it's introducing perhaps a frequency based control. Uh, and so so that's that's really um, yeah. That, that, that's all for me now. You know, yeah, another, I, another, oh, go ahead, Ryan. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just, you know, to pick up on um, comment Dr. Shah made earlier with the antibodies, um, it would be interesting to, you know, take take an assembly that that uh, that you find, and in essence, uh, you can, you know, you could stay, you can cross-link it, say, so it's, it's a, a stable coupled pile, but uh, raise antibodies against it, in the sense that, and then conduct the um, the reaction again in the presence of those antibodies, would they in fact uh, catalyze the amplification of uh, you know what they what they recognized? Uh, 
um, that might be an interesting, because um, there is a precedent with catalytic antibodies where, um, uh, but then this would be setting up a template of growing, you know, specific antibodies that would in essence provide a template that is already known to select for the assemblies that uh, that were previously observed. That's just yeah, a thought. That, that, that is, a, it is an interesting idea. I mean, the catalytic antibodies, I think is a, I mean, it's a great concept that I think, well, as far as I know, never really completely delivered on its promise in terms of, you know, it's very, very hard to make anything resembling uh, an, an, an enzyme. Um, so, you know, uh, transition state stabilization is clearly part of the, the whole puzzle, but the other, the, the other part is really to get the induced fit to work properly. So, you know, when I think this, this, the, what you really need to make, to make a, a, a good catalyst is a, a, a good balance of organizing your, cause you mentioned their cross-linking and, and as soon as you cross-link, you kind of rigidify the whole thing as well. So there's a there's a real balance between you know flexibility and structure that I think enzymes have just worked out perfectly, but very very hard to replicate in a synthetic matter uh, uh, manner and and I actually think that our, well I'm hoping that our system you know because we give it so many so many building blocks right so what we focused on today was uh, in in the paper uh if you remember all the dipeptides have essentially two pieces uh the the structure the structuring part and then the interaction part we've we've looked at glycine alanine and valine and for those of you familiar with the amino acid alphabet we can go essentially more strongly self-assembling like phenylalanine leucine we kind of avoided that in this case because we wanted something highly dynamic but if you go to those more strongly self-assembling pieces um, I think it may be possible to to ultimately end up with the right balance of flexibility and structure to get good catalysis. I mean, for us, it would be a dream to to see a catalyst emerge from 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 these these experiments. And I I think there's no reason why that can't happen. Um, but uh, yeah, we'd love we'd love to see to see that. Uh, and then, and that may be, you know, again, you know, the, the catalytic antibodies, it was one, you know, there's been a lot of interest in trying to achieve enzyme like activity, catalytic antibodies being, being one approach. Um, but yeah, we're, we're curious to see if we can, if, if our approach can achieve anything there, I have to say so far, we haven't been able to do <laughs> anything very convincing. Um, so, but it would be, um, it would be a nice thing to show. Yeah, quantification. I mean, when we are talking about the quantification, uh, we have to, for example, think about insulin molecule. We are right. talking about the couple of the peptides that they are just linked with the, for example, cysteine with each other. So cross-linking is undeniable in those kind of molecules. But whatever I'm thinking about is what organelle in a cell we should put it, you know? Because when we are talking about the structure, after that is going to be the function. And the function in a real cell happen under certain circumstances. It's not just, I mean, putting the peptide there and then amplify and then going through the process. That's why I just brought it up. So it was very fascinating work. Thank you for sharing it again. Sure. Well, so um, if, if, 
there's no other questions, I got a few, you know, a few more, or at least two. Um, I'd love to hear your questions, Serena. So in terms of, um, you know, tweaking the environment that these reactions that your system carries, carries out, um, the class of compounds uh, that we call dendromers, um, if, you know, they come in all kinds of uh, varieties, it would be curious to see uh, what kinds of dendromers might shape the energy landscape of your system and um, in, in that case. Have you thought about dendromers? No, no we, we haven't, but it, I think it's interesting to think about dendromers as like, you know, multivalent, um, you know, presenting, um, you know, if you, you think, I'm thinking dendromers here, here with maybe their tips, like functionalized with, with some kind of ligand where you, you basically get a lot more, you get um, uh, a presentation of ligands in a multivalent way that I think our system would would respond to in a in a very interesting way. Um, so uh, yeah, I think going beyond you know we showed ATP and ATP is clearly a small molecule. Um, going to more complex like templates, which could be a dendromer, I think would be would be very interesting and maybe also be the way to get you know to to favor formation of longer peptides ankit what do you think uh i i agree so uh Denimus is actually a very interesting idea the uh, from the multivalent aspect uh to begin with but also um because dendromers, depending on their generation i mean if let's say uh, a standard let's say a generation four uh dendromer if we go by in which there are a lot of uh, uh multivalent stuff present but there is also a quaternary structure essentially uh in the sense that the dendromer molecule itself has a uh, architecture plus it has um uh, pockets so uh, point being that uh, it would be interesting to see like there will be apart from the multivalent nature there would be amplification based on these aspects of uh, quaternary structure binding or perhaps looking at hydrophobic pockets and that sort of amplifying it that would be very interesting to look at actually um we we certainly yeah. didn't uh, think about it uh, i mean one major reason being that uh, dendromers are generally very you know uh, uh, sort of slightly cumbersome to synthesize in an already complex system however <laughs> it it, it yeah. does provide a very unique uh, challenge. I, I agree. It, it, it will be very fascinating to run libraries. Yeah, even if the final generation were more of your dipeptides. So it would all be a peptide surface functionalized. But depending on which ones you used, you would have, you know, sort of, um, you'd have these differential effects. So, you know, that's, that's cool. Another one, um, in, in this one goes back to, you know, thinking through origin of life and what types of templates and, and aggregation structures would be present. I stumbled onto clays and uh, the hydration clays because, you know, they, they provide all kinds of environments. Some would select for the purines and pyrimidines and the galleys and others, and the peptides would be more on the surface. But what I stumbled onto is the cosmetic industry has done an enormous amount of work with clays for for delivery of cosmetics and pigments. 
um, and they have uh, some very well-defined chemistry in terms of these uh, uh, accessible uh, tactoids, but these would be, you know, smaller groups of the, the phyllosilicate stacks that you can control in solution. So it still would be an, an aqueous solution, and you can decorate them to give them more properties um, in terms of water solubility and so forth. But that would provide, um, certainly if you're doing peptides and um, nucleosides, the, um, that would be some unique environments. And in some cases, you know, they'll get into pillared clays where there's plenty of room for things to move around, but they're still stable structures. Um, but that would be uh, interesting uh, environments that would certainly alter the, the aggregation effects. Just any thoughts of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, so so clays have enormous surface area, right? So um, having introducing a, a a interface, an additional interface like that, I think will be will be very very um, interesting. I mean, we we I think we haven't really explored that whole idea of actually introducing a solid um, with a large surface area into the system, and uh, well, it's very likely that you'll get um preferential buildup of of specific peptides at that solid liquid interface uh, i think clays are a great model system also because again they are you know as you say they they would be you know they're interesting for applications and they're they're an, another green chemistry example um so we haven't done that but i, I it is pretty high on my on my priority list to start to have a look at what happens when you actually introduce a um, you know and and essentially a nano a nano solid into into these 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 material into these systems so you can you can look at what what accumulates at the interface so i think i think it's a it's a very nice idea um but we we haven't we haven't done uh, anything with clays i mean the 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 cosmetics connection though is is it's quite clear to us that the you know even though what we do is very it is very much basic science the peptides that we that come out of this have you know interesting structuring properties the cosmetics industry and the food in industry is very interested in you know simple short peptides that can you know replace um, existing emulsifiers for example surfactants gelators um, so that is another area where there is actually applications around the corner, because it, because if you find you know tetrapeptides or hexapeptides that can gelate water or or or, or that can 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 be powerful emulsifiers, they you know they're low cost. They they have low barriers to um, application if you compare them to synthetic polymers or any new chemistry so i think i think that is actually a you know if you wanted like quick applications like you know not 70 years but you know much sooner um that is i think the um the the area where we should be looking but yeah i love the idea about looking uh, looking looking for clay interactions i think it, yeah what was really cool is you could get um apparently in some cases perhaps reagent grade you know tactoids of of, of known composition that are um, and you can select for size so like 100 nanometer 200 nanometer right you know tactoids of uh, which would be just really 
really cool character. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. That'd be, yeah. that'd be very nice to look at that. Some very nice ideas coming up here. Well, um, so it's been an hour and 40 minutes. Um, how, how much more, we want to be respectful to your time. How much more uh, longer do we have you for? Um, I can go for a little bit longer. I don't know about you, Ankit. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe. I mean, nine o'clock or something would be. So that's uh, New York time. So another fifteen minutes or so, I can. I can probably do. Yeah. Fair. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Please go ahead with questions. Um, I don't know if Serena, you had probably more questions. <laughs> Because well, I want to give other people a chance to to have questions too. Or Ankit, I saw you on mic. Did you have more comments? Uh, I, I just wanted to comment on the uh, the clay thing uh, a little bit. Uh, so, but as mentioned, yes, uh, clay has obviously a huge amount of origin of life significance. Um, and a, a paper uh, I just wanted to highlight. Uh, there was a recent work, I think, a couple of years back, uh, that came from uh, Lee Cronin's group. Uh, I think it's a if I'm correct, it's a PNAS, it's uh, 19 uh, work, um, which he actually looks at um, a limited range of uh, amino acids, uh, polymerizing on a variety of clays. And uh, he does not look at the molecular compositions of it, but he does principal component analysis to find out, uh, to mention that uh, differential amount, I mean, different amount of clays, uh, let it be monmorlite or, you know, uh, laponite or whatever. Uh, they give uh, very different ensembles. Each of them actually give very different products. And th that was one of the uh, parts in that particular paper. I just wanted to highlight that, that yes, uh, uh, amino acids and uh, clay really do go hand in hand. And there is something uh, good about, for example, a cosmetic function or something like that, is that Ryan's lab has shown that you really don't have to go to a very long lens of amino uh, peptides to actually get function out, at least uh, for cosmetic purposes. You don't have to go that far to uh, get function out of it. He's shown his uh, other, my colleagues in that lab had shown that tripeptides with three amino acids actually were enough to give you enough complexity for pretty cool cosmetic uh, function. So uh, true, uh, just wanted to add uh, to that uh, earlier comment. I mean, the other thing is that, uh, you know, uh, clay, clays are, you know, one of nature's um, nanostructures. And clearly there's many um, human-made nanostructures that like graphene, you know, carbon nanotubes, quantum dots, everything else. And um, finding short peptides that interact favorably with these so that they can be used for, say, biomedical applications is another area where I think what we're doing can be pretty useful. Um, so we are we're, we're trying to you know not restrict ourselves to to things that are necessarily all um, biologically relevant, but also really look at this interface between uh, you know non-biological nanotechnology and biological nanotechnology. So if you wanted to integrate anything you know synthetic into a biological context, you you need to think about the interface and what happens at that interface is going to dictate probably how effective your you know say man machine interface is going to be um so we we think that our methods can be useful at identifying some molecules that could could, could stabilize these interfaces and make that 
you know, make that more seamless uh, between the synthetic and the bio. Yeah, I did some work on the hydration of clays um, that appeared in Jax some time ago. Uh, but during that time, it was quite fascinating to study the, um, you know, the edges of clays because it was a particular simulation technique that allowed me to follow reactions. And um, but the the edges of clays uh, can support um, pho you know phosphate esters in in the sense. And um, what's fascinating about that is the geometry of the clay layers uh, nicely stacks three um, uh, nucleotide bases. Uh, so what that got me thinking about, you know, genetic codes and things. It would be interesting to, uh, if you ever do uh, get into the clays, looking at um, triplets of um, the um, of the nucleic acids and any particular preferential aggregation in the clays for the corresponding amino acids. Just to okay. that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, <laughs> we should, we should look into that. I mean, I haven't, uh, we haven't, we haven't really uh, looked into this deeply, but I, I think, um, uh, yeah, it's something to, to definitely consider. So you said this has been done with uh, nucleotides before? Where did that person go? Hello. Oh, Hello. am I talking on mute? Okay, I was talking on mute. Sorry. No, the work I, I did with clays was, um, it was computational. Okay. But it, it allowed me to take, um, uh, you know, a number of, so, you know, on the side, it didn't make it into the paper, but on the side, I would look at the geometries of clays and the geometries of, you know, these uh, abiotic precursors to you know, the functionality that we, that we see in life today, and particularly associations of amino acids and um, nucleic acids. And, uh, you know, where would the phosphates go? They, you know, there were a number of um, fascinating coincidences of geometry, I can say okay. that way. Okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the, the geometry matching is, so we played around with, um, uh, you. Uh, uh, if you're familiar with like uh, ice binding uh, proteins, and um, uh, that that basically again that's geometry matching, and I think all of that, all of those questions about how do you get a sequence that matches something, they lend themselves really well to this approach because you basically just throw in all the building blocks and let the system solve itself. Um, so we haven't we haven't really looked at a geometry matching question, but I think it's a really it's actually very very interesting, and I think you're now kind of convincing me that we should look at that. Um, and there's you know, so many examples where you could look at like uh, crystal structure uh, matching or anything like that. I think I think that this 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 system is is well suited to to something like that so yeah that's that's a great idea actually yeah, i was gonna add to what we're serena, able to sorry uh, can i go sorry Ethan, I just just a quick comment uh, i love when we're able to uh generate new homework so uh <laughs> that's always fun <laughs> uh, go ahead ethan yeah i was just gonna add to what serena was saying uh, and maybe suggest as well uh and even to is the 
do the same, but with the pyrimidines and purines rather than the whole nucleotide, especially since there's uh, <clears throat> evidence in some of the primordial soup of experiments that purines and pyrimidines are actually created in certain amounts alongside uh, the amino acids, like in the Milner-Urey experiments. So well, what's cool be, about it might the, be easier to find. Yeah. What's cool about the purines and pyrimidines and clays because they, they'll get pulled right into the calories, mm -hmm. into the inner layers, and um, that's part of what was so fascinating is they can the the purines and pyrimidines will accumulate in the in the inner layers of the clay, and uh, the amino acids will be more on the edges, but the phosphates won't. They don't have particular affinity for the in the inner layers. And during wet dry cycles, they'll condense. Uh, perhaps I'd love to see the chemical characterization of that, but they can esterify on the edges where they've got, um, you know, exposures there that they can bond to, uh, particularly in dehydration conditions. And so, um, amino acids on the edges, purines, pyrimidines in the inner layers, isn't that wet dry cycles? Isn't that a cool system? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely cool. And then you need to find someone to analyze what's going on, and that's where it always gets uh, int very interesting. Um, yeah, you know, that's the to us. I mean, the, this is really the being the the key to do doing this work would not have been possible without someone really committed to to, to fix the analytical puzzle. Um, because the, you know, the more things you mix, the cartoons always look beautiful, and it's nice to think up, you know, theories about like how multiple, you know, uh, collections of molecules interact and give rise to collective functions. But uh, you know, the the analysis is is very hard. Like so, so what you propose there is that you know, purines and uh, and 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 clays and amino acids, uh, you know, for, forming some kind of collective assembly, you know, you can draw what that looks like, but how do you actually prove that it is indeed that, that organization? It's not, that's far from trivial. Well, well, they, but they've also, the pharmaceutical industry has also looked into clays in terms of drug delivery. And there's a good body of literature on um, what they can aggregate and pull into the inner layers yeah, or yeah. for time release, and so there's a, there's a, that's another body of work that's looked Ooh. at clays. Yeah. Yeah, we'll take a look at clays. Well, I'll be happy to reach out. There's. <laughs> yeah, there's please, there's please much do. more to discuss. <laughs> Uh, does anyone else have any other questions or comments or? Uh... I see Ethan uh, joined the stage. Ethan, did you want to add something? Oh, no, I already, you know, uh, added to Serena's question. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, I guess I could add to the, a comment to wise rather than go. I think the pyrimidines and the purines separate from the whole um, nucleotide would just also, it might, you know, if you, seems like it would be plausible that you could find a shorter peptide sequence that might join up with those, in which case you would also have a perhaps a more likely scenario to back up into creating nucleotides rather than hoping for the nucleotides to show up from somewhere else and then figure them out.
that, that was just kind of my well yeah what's cool for the just the purines and pyrimidines in the um by the time they've get the you know the the sugar and the phosphate together they've they pretty much have to be at the edge of the clay yeah that's a good thing so um and and so that there's uh in terms of how they then condense you're starting to build your rnas or your um you know so it's there's that um go ahead no i'm ju i'm just curious so so you're proposing that there is within the clay a uh, essentially a gradient of chemical reactivity uh, yes in the sense that and and you know that's been a property that these these you know the pharmaceutical and the cosmetic industry have have exploited there uh, the natural clays there tend to be you know in the phyllosilicate layer there's uh, impurities and so they're generally positive charges that um, that accumulate and so that that will select for um, you know basically flat aromatic systems that interact well or positively charged ions um, and you know there's definitely a body on ion selective you know clays and um, but then if you know you're bringing in the phosphates on the edges uh, that so the geometrically will naturally segregate um, but then in the swelling clays they go through a um, transition where there's a monolayer of water in the dry state and a bilayer when it swells and that's also has to do with the balance and charge imbalance in the in the clays themselves so montmorillonite is um, like the canonical example of the swelling clays and and i was studying you know those but um, depending on what what types of charges are in the phyllosilicate directs the um, you know the chemical potentials in the inner layers and what uh, affinities different chemical species will have and um, they they're still they, they don't um, covalently bond to the clays in the inner layers there's you know hydration so they still they're in essence in a two di two dimensional sort of you know planar um, they well their their mobility becomes two dimensional until they get to the edges then you have all kinds of surface chemistry that could be happening there, you know, throw in catalysts on the edges. And um, there's, there's, it's a, a rich environment if, you know, if it can be chemically reined in. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, that that's the kind of thing that I think will add a next dimension to what we're trying to do. I mean, we have to an extent, you know, the, 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 the particles that we, we showed that form do create essentially a new environment you know you have basically the aqueous solution and now you start to create these particles where different things happen but actually uh, using more a template approach um like and if clays in inherently have some of these properties i think uh, very very likely uh, interesting things will happen if you just um uh, add them especially if you have a um i think what you're saying is you have a confined uh area um, perhaps between the, the the clay layers where covalent chemistry is not likely to happen but then you diffuse towards the outside where you 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 start to see uh, new chemistries happening and things like phosphorylation are super interesting 
um, also phosphorylating um, amino acid side chains. I mean, it would be a, would be a very nice thing to show. Yeah, it's a very um, very rich area. And so, Serena, this does this also have the effect? It sounds like that it would concentrate the reagents. Yes, that's, in that area. I yes, mean, it would. Much more. Uh, than, yeah, yeah. That, that would be really and, critical. Well, and that was like the, the interest in the pharmaceutical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the interest could, from the pharmaceutical industry in um, uh, taking up, you know, their their drug molecules and concentrating it in the layers. Um, because clays are also uh, fairly non-toxic. And so you'd have a time release mechanism, uh, perhaps, of, and, well, that was the interest. And there's a lot of work done on that. I mean, to me, it's interesting in terms of the abiotic, prebiotic situation, because I was actually surprised to have reread some of these primordial soups and realized that in addition to the amino acids, that you know, there was some purines and pyrimidines being, being generated, but they were in tiny amounts. So I think, you know, a place that, you know, even if they built up over hundreds of millions of years during that, that uh, perhaps uh, analog actually happening of the primordial yeah. soups, that they would actually have a way to make the reaction more likely if they were able to concentrate rather than being diffused. Well, that is what attracted me to, to yeah. which is why I'm a clay river shore yeah, yeah. dry cycle yeah. enthusiast. <laughs> Yeah, I think you just give us some ideas for our, uh, we have a whole bunch of summer students coming in uh, who are looking for projects. So we, um, <laughs> it'd be pretty, pretty cool to, um, to see what happens in, in the presence of, of a, of a clay. I think if you could, it's very likely that you will, you will, you'll find a complete redistribution of, um, of preferred sequences for sure. Um, so yeah, it, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, follow up on that and perhaps we oh, can... oh yeah i'll reach out summer students yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah we i'll have definitely no, reach out no shortage you know after you know after two two and a half years of pandemic uh, people are very happy to um, be doing things in person again after virtual summer student experiences i think they're ready to go and do something in the lab so um, yeah um, any any idea like that is uh, that we can test over the summer is is great so yeah love to follow up on that yeah one interesting thing to note at the start of the pandemic some uh, academics uh were clever and they were <laughs> they were uh clever enough to add the term uh, coronavirus or, or pandemic into the research and that allowed them to have lab access. I know uh, my co a colleague of mine, a neuroscientist, uh, he could not have access to his lab until very recently. And it was, uh, I think, very infuriating because neuroscience, of course, always has uh, all these participants and stuff. Uh, but uh, I wish you all the best and all your students all the best. Um, Hopefully this was a fruitful session so that you feel perhaps compelled to recommend it to your students uh, to yes. come and visit us at uh, Science Society or perhaps you yourself would uh, come by sometime and maybe even update us in the future of uh, any uh, uh, discoveries or advances. Yeah, I think we have to come back and talk about the clays after we've done the experiments. So uh, <laughs> wonderful. No, thank you so much. The great, um, great opportunity for us to, you know, um present our work and and uh, discuss it so we really appreciate it thank you so yeah, much yeah thank you so much fine and um yeah always come back and um yeah this was such a wonderful discussion i enjoyed a lot listening to it
mostly because Serena and knew she had, would make this discussion also very interesting. And yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And I look forward to uh, further, <laughs> further clays. Definitely, we'll follow up. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you everyone also for coming and um, being here, asking questions, commenting in the chat. Um, thank you, Ankit, for um, for sharing the papers and uh, saying that this was fun. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, yeah, this was really wonderful. And um, yeah, if you like um, discussions like this, follow the club um, on the press on the little green house and there you can check out what's next in our, what's happening next in our science society. Uh, tomorrow we'll have Dr. Guo. He will talk about dogs and how they recognize dog and human emotions. Uh, usually uh, species only recognize like in, in a species their emotions and dogs are quite special in being really good at recognizing human emotions too. And then we'll have uh, Dr. Cheng. She will be talking about using molecular orbital based machine learning on Saturday evening. And uh, yeah, and on Sunday, we usually have our weekly recap rooms where we summarize what we learned throughout the week in an hour. So uh, if you missed any of the guest speakers rooms, we will share the links to uh, their papers and like in, uh, in around 10 minutes or so summarize what we talked about um, so it's a nice way to like recapitulate what we did and it's kind of rewarding for us because we realize how much we learned in this week so so yeah thank you so much everyone and, and if I may, just 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 yeah. one comment before we quickly close and if you are yourself a researcher student professor, industry leader of some sort, you're paving the way in some sort of new innovation or discovery, please reach out to us, let us know, and we'd be more than happy to uh, feature your work, your research uh, here on Science uh, Science Society. So please reach out to Katarina, Serena, or myself, or any of the other green bean folks on stage. Yeah, that was great. Thank you, Eric, for, the, for reminding us. Yeah. And um, okay, we'll close the room in three, two, one. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone.